invite you to turn your Bible, if you have a Bible this morning. If not, you can just listen. But I encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 22. And this morning, I, I think we'll, I say I think, because sometimes I don't know how far we'll get. I anticipate that we will, uh, we will go through verse 33. I'm going to read verses 15 through 33 of Matthew chapter 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap Jesus in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. On that, on that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no children left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh, last of all the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Amen. This is the word of our Lord. Would you pray with me one more time? We've already asked in singing, asking God to speak to us, but let's pray one more time. Our Father, we pause to thank you for your word, and we do pray that you would give us this morning a very close and personal interaction with your Son, that we in our pride would be humbled, that we in our discouragement would be uplifted. And that in the end, at the close of this service, we would all go home astonished at Jesus. In his name we ask, amen. 
Well, we read this morning the first uh, two of three verbal assaults. Three verbal assaults, excuse me, by three different parties. We know what verbal assaults are like. We live in a culture of verbal assaults, don't we? We live in a culture of words. And we have a level of public discourse at this present time, at least in our nation, where it is literally a war of words. And in some sense, it's always been that way between different political parties and different philosophies and so forth. But I think we are keenly aware that our nation is reaching a point where where there is no longer debate. There is no longer discussion. There is just war. And war is carried out, thankfully, not with guns at this point or, or physical arms, but there is a war of words nonetheless. And our public exchange of words is, is often framed to not share the truth, not to share an idea, but to be as impossible to answer as can be. Everyone's trying to catch the other in their words. And... For those of us who are not quick on our feet with our words, and I include myself among them, I've never been quick-witted, and somehow God made me a preacher to, to talk as, as part of my living. But my whole life, other people seem to be quick with a joke or quick with an insight, and I'm kind of standing there just kind of blank-faced, and my, my processors are, are going and nothing's coming, and, and um, that's just the way it is. That's the way God made me, and, but... but um, you know, those of us who are like that, we feel like in this culture when there's, when there's the attacks on the faith or, or maybe about issues we care about and we feel inept, we feel weak, we feel we wish that we could strike a blow for the truth and, and so often we feel like we're just beating the air, if at all. This situation we find ourselves in in these days is, is not new, of course. In Psalm 27, David, the king, prays, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desires of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. Breathe out violence. It's what we're witnessing at this point in the Gospel of Matthew in the temple. As our Lord is there, a crowd is assembled. It is likely Wednesday before he is to be crucified. He is teaching the people the gospel, the kingdom of God, and the religious hypocrites, the leaders, cannot stand that he had the audacity the day before to clear out the temple from the racketeers and the hucksters, but that he has the audacity now to stand in the very temple of God and to presume to have the authority to teach the people as if he owned the place. And of course he does. It is his father's house, and therefore it is also his house. And these are his people. 
but there's a remarkable coalition of enemies to Jesus. They are men who typically would be at each other's throats, but who are united in their hatred of Jesus. This Jesus of Nazareth, this upstart who who heals people and does amazing things, but who does he think he is? He's a threat to their hypocrisy. He's a threat to their standard way of life. He's a threat to things as they are. He's a threat because he is the Holy One of Israel. And so various parties, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these are two different parties of the religious system. And we, we, know very, we know quite a bit about these two ancient religious parties or sects from Josephus, who was a Jewish historian writing shortly after 70 AD. He um, was alive not long after this period of time. He was well accustomed. And I spent some time the last few weeks reading Josephus and the translation of his works. And, and he takes some time to, exp- to explain the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and the various different parties or political and religious parties that were in that part of Judea at that time. The Pharisees were religious zealots. They were hyper-legalists, if you will. They were interested in the letter of the law, but not the heart of the law. And just to make sure that the letter of the law, at least their understanding of it, was obeyed, they would add to the law. Add, 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 add. And so you could see a Pharisee from a mile away by the way he dressed and by the way he carried himself and by the the phylactery around his forehead and the tassels on his, I mean, everything, wanting everyone to know how religious and he devout he was. The Pharisees presumed to be keepers of the faith. They were presumed to be the, the religious, uh, true religious leaders of Israel at this time. But Jesus has gone toe-to-toe with them, virtually his whole ministry, and exposed them as frauds, as hypocrites, and as burdening the people with laws that are man-made. The Pharisees hated Rome. They went along with it, but they hated the fact that Roman Empire was occupying Jerusalem and Judea at that time. They hated Herod because Herod was not Jewish. He was the king of that part of Israel appointed by Caesar. But the Herods, that line of kings, you may be familiar with the term Herod. You think of that, Herod the Great, and, and this now is, is one of his sons, this of the Herodians. They were in with Rome. They were politically connected, and they, they worked the system so that they could maintain their status under the Roman Empire as the political um, powers in Jerusalem and in that area. So the Pharisees and the Herodians, the followers and servants of Herod, were, they hated each other. The Sadducees were another religious uh, sect. They were, unlike the Pharisees, they were, um, they were not overly um, 
concerned with adding laws. In fact, actually, they detracted from the law. They were devoted to the first five books of the Old Testament, but really didn't pay much attention to the rest of it. And because, in part, they only paid attention to the first five books, at least according to their teaching, they suggested that the books, the Pentateuch, the first five books that Moses wrote, that you can find in your Old Testament, said nothing about the resurrection. And, and so the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. And, and they often were at each other's throats and hated each other's guts. So there are these different religious and political parties who typically would hate one another as much as our Republican and Democratic parties hate each other. I mean, there's not a lot of love there. (laughs) You're not sensing a lot of good feelings. (laughs) And you can often feel the tension in the discourse. I mean, in fact, it's at such a point we understand in our government that they really can't even talk to each other. That's what it was like in ancient Israel and in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. These different parties so despised one another that they, they could barely stand to be in the same room with one another. And yet here we find them united, though they come at Jesus with different assaults, united in their intent to take him down. That's the only reason they're talking to Jesus. There's first, there's three assaults, and I use the word assault intentionally. This is war. None of these lines of questioning are sincere. None of them is designed to elicit truth or insight from Jesus. Every one of these three assaults found in Matthew 22, the first by the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians. In verse 23, the second by the Sadducees. And we didn't read the third this morning, which is by, uh, it will be found in chapter 23. The Pharisees eventually get into it themselves. I'm sorry, that is at the end of chapter 22, verse 34. So these three different assaults, by three different parties, all designed to take Jesus down. In the words of verse 15, Matthew wants to make it clear. The Pharisees went, plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. This is verbal assault designed to trap Jesus publicly in the temple so that the population will turn against him violently and murder him. They they don't want him just out of the temple. They don't want him just out of Jerusalem. They want him off the planet. They'll get that, but not in the way that they designed. Jesus will leave the planet in his glorious ascension after he rises from the dead. So let's look first this morning at the first assault found in verse 15 through 22. We learn there that, verse 16, the Pharisees sent their disciples to Jesus along with the Herodians. It's remarkable. Um, Maybe 
with Jesus there in the temple with the crowd gathered around. Everybody knew by this point that the Pharisees hated Jesus's guts. And so maybe the Pharisees thought, you know what, we won't go head on assault. We'll send in some that are friendly to us, some of our disciples, but who aren't obviously Pharisees. And we'll send them in and, and we'll, we'll uh, provide them with verbal ammo. And it's a perfect strategy because not only do they send their disciples, but they so hate Jesus that they appeal to some of their longstanding enemies, the Herodians. These are the servants and the followers of King Herod. They hate Herod. They think of Herod as a, as a foreign occupier. They, they appreciate that he built the temple complex, but he is a rascal. But it's convenient in this case to ask their disciples, the disciples of the Pharisees and the followers of Herod, to go together to Jesus with a question. And the combination of the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians and the question concerning tax to Caesar is perfect. You have to understand this. Most Jews hated the tax. Now, who doesn't hate taxes? I mean, we've just been told that the IRS has received billions of dollars so that, um, well, yeah, they can, they can check on us and make sure we're paying our taxes. And um, We should be paying our taxes. We're going to learn from Jesus. I have nothing to fear from the IRS. But nonetheless, uh, even if we pay our taxes and we appreciate that they do certain things for us, we understand that we live in a government right now that, that is out of control, um, likes to give away money and then have us pay for their gift. Um, and so, but this is, taxation in Jesus' day was exorbitant. The Romans taxed the people exorbitantly so that Rome was provided for. Here was the foreign occupier requiring people to pay this very expensive tax. This was not like a parking ticket. This was a significant amount of a man's wages. Now, it's per, the question then is found in verse 17. So the disciples of the Pharisees, the Herodians, go to Jesus. Remember, it's a public place. Jesus is surrounded by this crowd. And they say to Jesus in the temple, tell us, what do you think? You should hear those words laced with poison. Is it lawful to give the poll tax to Caesar or not? They got him. They got him. Because most people hate the tax. And if Jesus is claiming somehow to be the son of David and the Messiah, surely he's opposed to Caesar. So if he says, no, no, you should not pay the, the tax to Caesar, Herod's guys, the Herodians who are loyal to Rome, will just whistle for Pilate and his troops to come and arrest this man who has just declared publicly that the people should not pay taxes to Caesar. It would be treason. He'd be a dead man. He wouldn't make it the day. If he says no, he's dead. If he says yes, you should pay Caesar, the crowd will likely turn on Jesus because everybody who's a true Jew, a true citizen in Israel, hates the Romans, hate these foreign occupiers, hate the tax, 
the burden that it is, and it truly is a burden upon them. Tax collectors like Matthew just ringed out of the people every last cent. It's, it's kind of like Robin Hood, you know, <laughs> and, and the people really are down to their last penny because of the cruelty of the Caesar and underneath him all of the thugs like Herod who robbed the people, robbed the poor. So if Jesus says, yes, you should pay the tax to Caesar, it's likely that the crowd is going to stir up because here he is saying in God's temple that after all, they should be loyal to Rome. They got him. They got him. And I confess, I wouldn't know how to answer. I'd be stuck. I'd be saying, uh, you ever found yourself in a situation where you feel like you should have the right answer, but you don't know what to say? But that's not Jesus. Jesus is not at a loss. The crowd was likely silent. They've asked the question, is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Large setting, large crowd. All you hear are sparrows and maybe morning doves. Because everybody is waiting to see, what is he going to say? They're wondering what Jesus will say and do. But Jesus is not only not at a loss. He is in command. He's in command. The king is in command. He... Verse 18, perceived their malice. Others may not have seen it. This was likely a, a, a regular question of debate. If you love God, if you're loyal to his people, should you be paying that tax to that pagan occupier? And it's a little bit more layered than the question you might think at face value. It, it's not just about the tax. Jesus perceives their malice. He knows their heart, even though others may not. He says, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Uh, It's a bit of an aside, but again, in a day and age when among Christians we have this idea that grace means that you never, ever, ever say anything directly or mean, then what do you do with Jesus? Because here he's speaking very directly. And in front of this entire crowd, he's looking at these disciples of the Pharisees and these Herodians, and he's looking them square in the eye. And the Holy One is saying, you hypocrites. He's taking these men on head on, and these men head on, and he's taking them on publicly and he's not saying, well, you know, that's a difficult question. I, I think, you know, people have different opinions about it. Some say this and some say that. He doesn't go into this discourse. He sees it for what it is, calls it for what it is, and calls out their hypocrisy. Now, of course, he is the king, and he can see things. And, of course, we shouldn't go around <laughs> uh, going around calling everyone a hypocrite. My point is simply that 
Our Lord does not countenance this kind of verbal violence. He asks for a coin. Verse 19, show me the coin used for the poll tax. I said that this question is is more than just about tax because we have, from archaeological finds, we have coins from Judea in those days. We have a denarius that, that, like what Jesus would have held up. And on that coin, it's not just like one of our pennies, you know, Abraham Lincoln or, or one of our presidents. It's a picture of Caesar ascribing divinity to him. Divinity. Caesar was to be worshipped. And so by asking him about this tax, and then Jesus asking for a coin, think about it. The law of God said, you shall not make any graven images. Surely no one was to bring into the temple images. And Jerusalem, among the entire Roman Empire, was unique in that it was the only place in the entire Roman Empire where the Roman eagles and the, the symbols of Caesar's authority were not allowed. They had arranged an agreement with Rome. So here is an image of Caesar ascribing to him divinity being held up in the temple by Jesus. He's done, they're thinking. He's committed the unpardonable sin. He's toast. We got him. Jesus says, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? I do like toast, especially with honey um, and a little butter. Jesus says, show me a coin. And he asked them a question, whose likeness and inscription is this? Verse 21, they said Caesar's, and he said to them, and think of this, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Boom. (laughs) Not only does he answer their verbal assault and rebuff it without any effort, not only is he left standing, the king, after their assault, He has actually exposed that whatever they do with Caesar, they don't give to God what belongs to God. There is no fear of God in their eyes. There is no reverence for God. There is no real concern for his kingdom or love of his ways. Jesus not only withstands their verbal assault, he sends them running. Hearing this, verse 22, they were amazed. (laughs) And leaving him, they went away. You got to picture this. This is war. This This is combat. They have brought forward their best. They had him in the right place, in the right position. And Jesus hasn't wavered one bit. The king is in command. There is teaching here, of course, that we as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are to give honor to whom honor is due. We are, according to the New Testament scriptures, to be in submission to the authorities over us. 
We do learn in this text that that submission to the authorities over us is not unlimited. It is insofar as it is in agreement with keeping our obedience to God and our love for God. By giving, we give to God what belongs to God. And whenever the government comes along and asks to us to give to them something that belongs to God, we, we firmly and resolutely say no. An example would be uh, the courage of my friend James Coates in Canada and other pastors around the world who, when their government said, you can't meet to worship anymore, we, we forbid you. And they said, well, um, in so many words, we're sorry, um, we, we can't do that because God has commanded us to assemble, to meet, and to worship him. And that, by the way, would be our stance now that we have this place. Of course, we'll be concerned about, we take measures within reason to look out for the health of the people. But if the government ever says to us, no, you can't meet to worship, we will firmly, resolutely say, we're sorry, but that's not an option for us. We must obey God rather than men. So we give to God what belongs to God. It's an important teaching here on both our submission to those in authority over us and also our prior teaching, our prior commitment to God. However, that is not the main point of this text. The main point of this text is our unassailable Christ. In this culture of so much war of words and and so many one-liners and so many takedowns, and we've seen how just about anybody can be taken down by verbal assaults, our Lord Jesus Christ is unassailable. He cannot be taken down. He cannot be undermined. There is no word that can be brought against him to stop him from being King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that ought to be, I'm getting to the application here early in the sermon, in case you wonder where this is going, that ought to be such an encouragement to us in this culture that is unraveling around us as it is full of evil and perverse and crooked and vile and angry and violent words that all of the schemes of the devil cannot move our Lord Jesus Christ. He is unassailable. And it's a wonderful encouragement to God's people. Don't worry. He can handle Twitter. He can handle Facebook. He can handle all the texts and emails this world can ever raise up against him. Every book that might be written, he's unassailable. Look with me at assault number two. (laughs) The disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians are sent scattering with their tails between their legs, as it were. So on that day, later in the day, some Sadducees. Remember, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are not friends. And the Sadducees kind of looked down their noses at the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the, were the hyper-legalists. They were, the, they were kind of outside. The Sadducees were the respectable religious elites. They were the, the ones who had influence in Jerusalem. They often uh, were those who were high priests and so forth. They were in with the government. And so they thought, well, this was, this was really a junior league, that attempt. We'll now come to Jesus with a real zinger. And they come to Jesus, and the Sadducees in the temple again question him, asking, teacher, Moses said, and then they quote from Deuteronomy chapter 25. And this was, it's strange to us, this language about a, a brother marrying his, his brother's 
deceased brother's wife, and we think, well, that's kind of weird and strange. And we just have to remember that God was providing for the widows among his people. There is no government support system. There is no opportunity. He is providing both for the support of that widow and also uniquely in Israel as the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was providing for the continuation of the lines, of the genealogical lines. We read our Old Testament, Numbers, for example, and we have all these names, 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 names. And we can't pronounce even a quarter of them. And our eyes glaze over and we think, wow, this is, this is Monday morning. This is my Bible reading. What do I do with this? You know? And uh, we go through the names and maybe we skip the names. And, and understandable. Uh, don't look for any deep meaning in those names of that list. All it is, is God had promised to Abraham that I will multiply your seed as the sand, as the stars in heaven. And that is a record of God being faithful literally to multiplying the people and maintaining that line. So it was about maintaining the line. It was about maintaining the promise of God. It was a provision of kindness for these widows. There's nothing weird about it. But the Sadducees, were told in verse 30, 23, believed there was no resurrection. This is where they differed with the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection. The Sadducees thought, no, no, there's no resurrection. This life is all there is. Uh, you religious nuts who believe in, in resurrection, no, that's sorry. It's just here and now. That's all there is. And so what they were trying to present to Jesus, they were trying to mock him and ridicule him publicly by bringing him to what they thought was an impossible situation. They ask this question with scorn, and they present a theoretical scenario where there's seven brothers, and the first dies, and so the second marries his widow, and the second one dies, and you get the picture. And they all end up dying, and, and then finally the wife dies. And, and with scorn and mockery, in front of everyone, they say to Jesus, in the resurrection, verse 28, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they had married, all married her. They got him. What's he going to say? They're going to expose this country bumpkin fundamentalist is what's going on. They're going to expose him as ignorant, as extreme, unreasonable. But Jesus, once again, is in command. He says, verse 29, you are mistaken. See how direct he is? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a difficult situation. I have to think about it. No, you are mistaken. Translated, you are wrong. <laughs> You're wrong. I mean, nobody tells the Sadducees they're wrong, and Jesus in the temple tells them, You're wrong. You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, I want you to make a note of verse 29. And that phrase, not understanding the scriptures. We live in a time when we're told that the scriptures in many different issues are very difficult to understand. And no one would come to any firm kind of conclusions because humility demands that we, we always kind of understand that the Bible's very complex and, and and in humility we all recognize that none of one of us not one of us has mastered this book 
we will never master this book. This book is master. But we believe that God, when he revealed himself and his will in the scriptures, we believe in the doctrine of perspicuity. I know it's a big word, but perspicuity means clarity. What it means is we may be unclear in our speech. We may be unclear in what we communicate, and I too often can be unclear. God is never unclear, except when he intentionally wants to be and tells parables, as we've learned. Except when he says, go on speaking, but they will not hear. God is clear. We dare not ascribe to God the lack of clarity that so often characterizes our speech. And while not everything is as plain in the Bible, do not believe for a second that as much of the Bible is as unclear as most evangelicals, especially today, want to suggest. And I'm pointing you to verse 29 because you watch Jesus and throughout the Gospels as he interacts with those who are contrary, he will point them back to the scripture and without exception, you look at how he references it and you say, yes, that meaning is there and it is plain. Jesus never presents this kind of concocted, convoluted, you know, exegesis and and interpretation of the scriptures. He's rather plain. He basically says, haven't you read your Bible? This verse indicates this. Watch how Jesus uses the Old Testament, and you'll find that he takes it at face value. That's a bit of an aside this morning, but I want you to note that. Do not believe what so many tell you that your Bible is so difficult to understand and these things are so complex that you have to have some kind of Bible degree in order to understand it. Yes, we need teachers. Yes, we need preachers and theologians. But we believe in the clarity of Scripture. So Jesus says, you do not understand the Scriptures, nor the power of God. And then Jesus tells us that in the resurrection... There is no marriage. Um, There never was any indication in the Bible that marriage would carry on past death and resurrection. And Jesus does present to us some teaching here. He doesn't reference an Old Testament passage, but as the Son of God, he reveals to us that in in heaven, that there is no marriage, but we're like angels who are not married. And that's kind of a disappointment to some of us. Particularly, I remember when I was younger um, in Christian school or so forth, and some of us who were younger thinking, I, I, I'm not sure I want Jesus to come first because I want to get married. And um, okay, understand that. But it's hard for some of us who know the joys of marriage to think of, of not having the blessing of marriage. But what we need to understand and remember is that when we are in heaven and in the new heavens and the new earth with the Lord Jesus Christ, made new and redeemed with him and with his people, we will have a perfect communion with God and a perfect relational communion with one another. Your spouse may no longer be your spouse in heaven, but if your spouse is a believer... You will have a quality of friendship and communion 
and enjoyment of the Lord Jesus Christ like you can never experience on this earth. I love the relationship of marriage. I, I, think it's, I think it's the best, the best. Even with all the challenges and all the difficulties. But Jesus teaches here that in the resurrection that there will not be marriage. And then he goes on to say, verse 31, have you not read which was spoken to God? <laughs> Again, do you not understand? Have you not read? Jesus assumes that with a plain, straightforward reading of Scripture, you can understand the doctrine of the resurrection. And he points to verse 32, in that quoting from Exodus 3, 6. And notice that Jesus, remember the Sadducees, really only look to the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They only really recognize those first five books as authoritative. They're wrong, but that's what they do. So what Jesus does, he doesn't go to Isaiah or some of the other prophets where, or a Daniel where resurrection is, is clearly taught. Jesus goes to the first five books and he goes to Exodus, the book of Exodus where the law is, and he says, have you not read? Whoa, everybody's there. Have, have the Sadducees not read the Pentateuch, the first five books? What do you mean? They've got it memorized. Jesus, just in front of everybody, just said to the Sadducees, the, the greatest, most influential, powerful, elite teachers, haven't you read your Bible? And what's he point to? Exodus 3, 6, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. One verse. And I know as school starts, kids, I know that you maybe don't like English grammar. Some of us adults don't either. But grammar, nouns and verbs and adverbs and present tense and all this kind of stuff. It matters. You don't have to be an expert in it. But Jesus quotes this verse, and notice that it, he's resting his case on the grammar. God does not say, I was the God of Abraham, and I was the God of Isaac, and I was the God of Jacob. No, I am present tense. In other words, the grammar there in the Hebrew originally he is the God presently of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, which means that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though they are dead, yet they still live. God is the God, not of the dead, Jesus says, but of the living. Grammar matters. So I know sometimes it's like taking gross medicine to study grammar. But in truth, most of our Faith rests on grammar, God-given grammar through the word. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus takes the Sadducees to school in their own speciality and points out, you guys need to get back to reading your Bible a little more closely. He's the God not of the dead, but of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive in the presence of God, and he is their God. God of the living. I want to, we'll move on next week to the third assault. But I want to encourage you this morning 
that not only here do we learn that our Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, is unassailable, but we have here in this section of Matthew 22 a glorious preview of what is coming. Are you tired of all the bicker and of all the lies? Are you tired of that? Are you tired of all the, the scheming and the... It, it's risen to a, a pitch in our nation that it's, it's nauseating, isn't it? It's, it's so difficult that for some of us, we have to fight depression by not reading the news too often. We just, we just want somebody that's going to say something without an agenda. We live in such a time as that. And we're told in the scriptures that in the last days, difficult times will come and, and it's going to get worse. I want to encourage you that what we see here is our Lord Jesus Christ receiving these verbal assaults though from those who breathe out violence. And the king is in command and he dispenses with them. And the result is in his presence, peace. And there's not one word left. Verse 34, the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. He silences them. He shuts them up with his holy character, his wisdom. And this is a glorious preview of what's coming ahead. Be encouraged. There's an end to this. And it will come about by your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not going to come about by counseling on better communication and that's important that is and you know it's not going to come about with new new technologies no the the those who breathe out violence are going to only increase the verbal rancor the assault against Christ and his people is only going to increase we are often going to feel like we can't answer we're going to feel like we're being maligned and misunderstood and and especially in issues of LGBTQ in these days and all kinds of things we we will be lied about we will be assailed we will be likely sued and and on and on it goes and we feel what can we do who can possibly stand in the face of such an onslaught of verbal violence and the answer is Jesus Christ our Lord and there's a day coming and I mean this in a reverent way and I don't mean to be I'm not trying to be cool when literally he will shut their mouths. We learn this, for example, in Isaiah 29, and we will close here this morning. Verses 20 and 21, it's just this beautiful prophecy, this promise of what will come to pass. Isaiah 29, verse 20, God says, For the ruthless will come to an end, and the scorner will be finished. These Pharisees, these Herodians, these Sadducees, they're scorners. They're ruthless. And all like them. Indeed, all who are intent on doing evil, Isaiah says, will be cut off. Who cause a person to be indicted by a word and ensnare him who adjudicates at the gate. In other words, God's saying there's going to be an end to those who seek to trap people in their words and defraud them 
with meaningless arguments. They will be cut off. They will be silenced. And there will be one voice and one way of communicating, and it will be truth, and the result will be love, joy, peace, and all the fruits of the Spirit. That's our Lord. And what an encouragement in these days of so much verbal perversity and violence that our Lord can handle it. Let's worship him for it. So we do, Lord Jesus, we're astonished at you and at your command, not only of the situation, but of all things. And what hope is put in our hearts that in the face of the seemingly unending assaults on the gospel, upon your truth from the evil one, the liar, that you are not fretting, you are not wringing your hands, you are not wondering what you're going to do, but that you are in full command. What a hope, what a joy it is this morning to, to see you in your glory in the scriptures. So help us to be more like you. We, we do not presume to ever be able to answer a question like you did, but help us to be your people who are careful with words, who love your written word, the scriptures, and who are never afraid, who never cower, but who trust that your word, that you will win and you will silence the scorners in the last days. May you come quickly and bring about that reality, we ask in your name. Amen.